Tell you what, um, let's pretend I had a really good introduction and let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the way that you reach out and that you teach us that you um, are, are gracious, God. We just heard about forgiveness and the passage we're looking at today deals with that too. Help us to understand more of what the reality of that is and the um, implications for our life are huge. So teach us from your word and help us to um, be people that are indeed transformed by our life and our commitment with you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I'm hoping that we're going to finish um, our look at Second Chronicles 7.14 today. We started Second Chronicles 7 uh, several weeks ago, 4 or 5. I think this is our sixth week in here. Um, and I, my, my plan is to finish verse 14 today, and we're going to move on through the rest of the chapter. Next week or two, we'll see how, how that goes. We'll move on through it. But Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, we paused at, and it's a verse that's familiar to many people. It says, And my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, and seek my face, and turn from their evil ways, and I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. This is an if-then promise. You don't see the word if right here. In some of the translations it does have it, but it's in verse 3, which is the beginning of the, of the excuse me, verse 13, the beginning of the sentence here that, that comes along, you know, and it's if my people called by my name, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their evil ways, I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Um, this is a conditional promise, an if-then statement. If this is if this is what you will do, then this is what I will do, is what God is saying here. It's not unconditional. It is dependent upon something. Uh, it's a situation where God tells us how he will respond to our behavior, and uh, uh, that conditional statement. Now, an unconditional promise is when God says he'll do something with no requirements on the part of one that he's speaking to. When God called Abraham, God gave him an unconditional promise. He said, he said to him in Genesis chapter 12, it's recorded, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. Notice what he says here several times. He says, I will, you know, you know, he says, I will. And then I will, I will. And he says, then this will, this is what's going to happen. God was doing this because he was God, not because of anything of Abraham, not because Abraham was worthy. Now, uh, you know, I mean, it's not even because Abraham was faithful. There were plenty, plenty of times when Abraham sinned. He wasn't always faithful. He wasn't always the, the, uh, God's person. Abraham had to learn to... to if you read back in Genesis, Abraham was a polytheist. He believed in worship. You know, he was among people that believed in more than one God. And he had to learn the whole reality of the fact that there is one God. And then he had to, you know, he had to learn to be able to trust in him. And his trust got shaky a few times. But still, you know, still God makes this unconditional promise to him. God says that I will do this. I will make you the great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. Why? Because God is God, not because Abraham was Abraham, but because God was God. 
and he gives us this conditional promise not just us he gave it to he gave it to his people and again we are his his people you know that conditional promise based on the conduct the behavior of god's people you know he says that god's people those who are called by his name you know those who have a relationship with him i believe this applies to all those who have a relationship with god through christ all those who know jesus as their savior it says if if god's people you know humble themselves seeing god you know seeing god in his majesty seeing god high and lifted up you know not that we are something but that god is something if they humble themselves he says and pray speaking and listening with god you know, not just having this monologue, but speaking and listening. You know, and again, not even just reading his word, but speaking with him and listening to him when what he says. And seek, my, seek his face, it says, that determined, consistent, never-ending effort. When you're seeking something, you keep looking and you dedicate yourself and you go after that and you continue. And if, you're, if you have struggles, you still continue. You overcome those, you endure those, whatever it is, you continue after that. Seek his face it says and turn from their wicked evil ways that about face we looked at this last week that about face that that turning turning away from anything that turns you away from god that you turn away from anything at all in your life that turns you away from god he says if these are the choices and actions of god's people then an amazing thing happens amazing things happen look what it says first of all it says god will hear from heaven do you understand what it means that god hears us we're not praying to emptiness we have this opportunity to to be with god and that god hears us I've told you before, it's kind of comical around our house sometimes now, you know, with uh, uh, losing the hearing on the right side of my head and, you know, and listening to rock and roll too loud when I was younger. And a combination of those, and we can have some hilarious conversations. And we can even, one of the things we say quite often to each other when the other one starts talking is, I can't hear you. (laughs) I know you're talking. I know you're saying something, but I can't hear you. God hears us. You know, he's not limited by things like we are. Our requests do not fall on deaf ears. In 1 John, we're going to get into the book of 1 John after we're done with this series. My, my plan is to get into 1 John. But anyway, in 1 John chapter 5, it says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, notice what it says. He hears us. He hears us. And if we know he hears us, whatever we ask, you know, we know that we have what we asked of him. Now, don't, you know, this is not a prosperity gospel thing, because if you take the Bible and it's, if you take the Bible in its entirety, this whole prosperity gospel thing is flushes down the toilet, you know, which is where it should be. But that's maybe another sermon, another time. Um, what he's saying here, uh, follow along the logic of what we've been looking at in Second Chronicles, you know, that when you humble yourselves, you know, when you give God as high and lofty place in your life, 
life and you seek his face diligently, seriously, earnestly, you know, con- continu- you know con- continuously, uh, regularly put forth ex- this extended uncompromised effort to know God, to know his word, to know his character, to know his attributes, to know his being. When you do that, then you move, you, then as, as you're doing that, the more and more you ask, you will be asking according to his will. Why? Because your desires will be more and more transformed to match his. When God says, I will give you the desires of your heart, I don't believe that the meaning of that is that I will give you whatever you want, you spoiled little stinking brat. I mean, isn't that how some people approach God? Isn't that a lot of what comes forth in this whole prosperity gospel? I'm God's kid. When, um, when I had become a Christian, uh, we were, you know, Jenny and I were involved in, in a Bible study at our home. No, the only two people who went to the same church were husband and wife. Other than that, everybody was from a different church. And so when I came to the place where I realized, you know, that I needed to get a little more serious with God, is it actually before I committed my life to him? And I thought, okay, we need to start going to church. And I, I dragged Jenny to the Catholic church with me every Sunday because I was determined if God was to be found, I was going to find him in the Catholic church. And I was determined about that. And I believe if you pay attention, you can. Uh, there's no question in my mind about that. But... Uh, I, I, you know, I grew up in that, so to me, I was used to it, you know. I really am not going to say what I was just going to. This is probably the first time, so you should mark it down. Um, and so I decided that what we would do is we would try, you know, we would try other churches. And we'll try the churches of the people that are in this Bible study. Why not? So we went to the Christian Missionary Alliance Church in South Holland. We went to, I, my, my plan was do this for four weeks try the next one for four weeks you know and we do that and work our way through all the churches so the first four weeks we went to the christian missionary alliance church and it was very different for this catholic boy you know i mean first of all there were no kneelers what in the world are you going to do you know with no kneelers and stuff and uh, and people actually talked to me and I wasn't used to that either, you know. And uh, uh, they didn't do the same thing every week. And I wasn't quite used to that. Well, our four weeks were there were done. So then I, I, I already knew where we were going to go the next week. We were going to go to the church my sister went to. My sister was involved in a charismatic church at that point, And it was uh, very much a prosperity gospel type thing. You know, and, uh, you know, that, that God's going to, you know, give you what, whatever it is, you, you know, that you want. And... Um, you know, that doesn't square with Scripture. You know, and I can remember hearing, you know, that the pastor saying, you're God's kid, and God's kid, God's going to take care of his kids, and he'll give you whatever you want. It sounded great, you know. Um, it didn't sound real to me, you know, and again, you know, my background played into that a little bit, but, um, you know, the truth is, when God says, I'll give you the desires of your heart, when you seek after him, he is going to give you new desires in your heart. He is going to transform your heart, you see. The desires, he will place those desires in your heart. Your desires will get cleaned up. 
This is, I believe, very clearly what he is telling us, you know, that when he talks about that. Uh, you know, so that this whole picture here, you know, uh, our desires more and more will match his will. We think of God and, and heaven sometimes as, you know, he's, it's far off somewhere. Like there's this great distance between us. Uh, it's like what uh, the, the one parable Jesus told about that, uh, you know, that when uh, the, the uh, Lazarus died, the rich man died, and, and, when, and there was this great gulf between them, you know. And this is kind of the picture in us. And, and what happens sometimes is we, it results in us seeing God as distant. God's, God's way off somewhere. He's distant, you know, he's far off somewhere and there's this huge distance between us, you know, and, and we begin to see God as distant and maybe even unconcerned. You know, maybe even unconcerned a little bit. That is not accurate. That is an inaccurate picture of God. Joshua chapter 1 verse 9 says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. God will be with you wherever you go. What are they doing? They're walking in obedience to God. They're going into a challenging circumstance. And he says, God will be with you wherever you go. Isaiah chapter 43. God says, I will be with you. When you pass through the waters, when you pass through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. You will not be scorched when you walk through the fire and the flame will not burn you. I will be with you. You're still going to go through some of these challenges. You're still going to face some of these struggles. But know that I will be with you and they will not have the ultimate victory in your life. Why? Because I will be with you. It's not just Old Testament stuff, New Testament. Second Corinthians 13. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Become mature. Whoa, there's a word for you. Open your Bible and circle that one. Just a thought. Become mature. Be encouraged. Be of the same mind. Be at peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. He says, to me, this is kind of an echo of of 2 Chronicles. Be God's people, he says. And more and more you will realize that God is with you. Philippians. Paul wrote to the Philippians. Uh, do what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me and the God of peace will be with you. Be God's people. You will realize God is with you. John chapter 14. It says, as Jesus is, is speaking with his disciples, with his followers, he says, I will ask the Father. He will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. The world rejects him, you see. He says, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. See, he sta- God hears us because he loves us, you know, because he is God and because he is with us. When God's people humble themselves, pray, seek God's face and turn from our wicked, our evil ways, God hears us. And it says, and will forgive our sins. Sin needs forgiveness. Sin needs forgiveness. Ultimately, it, it's from God because all sin is a violation of God himself. It's a violation of his holiness, of his word, of his being. We should never ignore sin in our lives. Sin is never okay. Sin is never just a little deal. 
it's always a big deal because it, 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 it's us taking a stand right in the face of God. You know, sometimes we have a hard time accepting forgiveness. You know, um, sometimes we don't feel we deserve forgiveness. Well, let me tell you, you don't. You don't. You don't deserve forgiveness. You never deserve forgiveness. But God still forgives you. You don't deserve it, but God gives it to us. Nehemiah, I, I, look at this passage. You know, talk about not humbling yourself. You know, not humbling themselves. Nehemiah chapter 9. As Nehemiah is called back, you know, and, and, and you know, he's, he's, this Jerusalem's in destruction and it's way in heaven. And so anyway, here's part of, you know, in Nehemiah. As he's praying, you know, a, a picture, a real picture of not humbling yourself, of not seeking God. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commands. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. They weren't seeking God. It says, so they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness. I love the way that appears in the middle of this here. You are a God of forgiveness, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. Now, they didn't turn from their evil ways. It says, even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, this is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies. They didn't humble themselves. They weren't seeking God. They didn't turn from their wicked ways. And yet it says in the middle of there that you are a God of forgiveness. Forgiveness is a gift that is given. It's a gift that is given. It's not something we deserve. It's not something, you know, that we've earned. You don't, you, you, we don't deserve it. We don't earn it. Our specifics may differ. You know, your sins, my sins, they might be a little bit different, but forgiveness is the same. Ephesians chapter 2, it says, For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is what? God's gift. Forgiveness is a gift that is given. It's God's gift. It's not from work so that no one can boast. I don't deserve forgiveness. You're right. You are right. It's a gift that is given. Here's the deal for you. You know, my brother, you know, my, my brother struggled with some of, you know, some of, and he told me, you know, he told me, you know, that, that he didn't feel he could be forgiven. There is no sin, you know, that is too great. There is no sin that exceeds God's forgiveness. In Romans chapter 5, the law came along to multiply the trespasses. So sin, sin was abounding. It says, but where sin multiplied, notice what it says, where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. Where sin was great, grace was greater. It was greater. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also what grace will reign. Grace will reign through righteousness resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord because there is no sin that exceeds God's forgiveness. There is no such thing. We misunderstand the fundamental nature of forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean that something just disappears as if it were never there in the first place. Now, follow what we're, what we're saying. That's what it looks like on the receiving end. 
on the receiving end, it's, it's like it's disappeared, like it's never been there in the first place. But the reality of, of forgiveness, the one doing the forgiven, the one that is doing the forgiving has a much different take on the reality of forgiveness. Forgiveness that the, means that the one forgiving takes the loss. If I owe you, if I owe you ten thousand dollars, you know, and I have this debt with you for ten thousand dollars, and you forgive it from my end, from my end, the, the debt has disappeared. From your end, you have the loss of ten thousand dollars. You see, one forgiving takes the loss. You know, if some Sunday you stand up and call me an odiferous, slime-bellied skank, and I forgive you, that means that you know that that means I, I don't retaliate at all. But I treat you politely. I treat you with love. You know, I continue to work for your welfare, even though you don't deserve that from me. That's what I give you. Jesus came to provide forgiveness to man. In Luke chapter twenty-four. As he also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day in repentance for forgiveness of sin would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. We misunderstand the fundamental nature of forgiveness. And we underestimate the cost of forgiveness. We underestimate the cost of forgiveness. Jesus Christ, God himself, you know, God himself, part of the triune God, one God made up of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you know, one God, all co-equal, each one fully God. You know, Jesus steps aside. Jesus Christ, you know, left his rightful place in heaven, dwelling place of God, and he came to dwell among us as a man, came to dwell among men as a man in order to provide for our forgiveness. Philippians says, Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the very form of God. Now, that, that word in the very form of God means in the essence, in, in what makes God God. You see, in whatever it is that makes God God, this is what Jesus is. He says, this is what Jesus is. You know, existing in the very form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There, there is the cost of forgiveness. Right there, that death on the cross is a cost of forgiveness. In 1986, an article was published in a journal of the American Medical Association. And it describes in a bit of detail uh, what Jesus would have physically suffered as he went through the, the flogging, the crucifixion at the hand of the Roman government. A crucifixion is a brutal treatment. And it is, was meant to inflict a high degree of excruciating pain over an extended period of time. It wasn't just a, 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 a flash and it was done. It was meant to stretch this out over a period of time. The editor of the, of the journal magazine said that they did not view the article as religious, but one that was rather an article focused on the effects of torture 
on an individual. It was actually the first in a series of articles they did on government torture of people. Uh, an abstract, let me, let me read you an abstract from the article. It just, just describes, as a small section that describes the overall picture of the article. Says the scourging produced deep strike-like lacerations and appreciable blood loss, and it probably set the stage for hypovelmic shock, as evidenced by the fact that Jesus was too weakened to carry the crossbar, the the patabulum, uh, to Golgotha. At the site of the crucifixion, his wrists were nailed to the patabulum, and after the patabulum was lifted to the upright post, the stipes, his feet were nailed to the stipes. The major pathophysiological effect of crucifixion was an interference with the normal respirations. Accordingly, death resulted primarily from hypovelmic shock and exhaustion asphyxia. I had to look a few of those words up. Now let me, let me put this in simple terms. I'm, I'm, I'm a simple guy. Let me just put it in simple terms so we can understand this more. Jesus was beaten with a whip. Uh, that was designed uh, with pieces of metal and bone in the ends of long strands of leather. And it was purposely meant to inflict long, deep wounds everywhere that it landed. Uh, Jesus would have had his hands raised above his head by ropes tied to his wrists in order to give a wide-open target for this flogging. Now, a soldier who was trained to maximize each impact, each assault of this whip, would aim each blow precisely to inflict as much damage as possible. Some of those strikes would wrap around Jesus' sides, forcing the pieces of metal and bone to embed themselves in his chest so that when the soldier pulled back that whip, that it would, it would tear and plow, blow it, you know, into his, into his flesh. So it, as he pulled it back for the next blow, it would tear through his skin. His back was an easy target as the soldiers would rake the whip down Jesus' back, plowing furrows deep into his flesh, sometimes so deep that bone was exposed. This, combined with the head wounds that were, that were even multiplied by the repeated strikes on the head, driving the thorns from that, that crown that was put on his head to mock him, and driving those deeper into his flesh when they beat him, not only, not only struck him with blows of his fists, but it says that they even struck him with the staff when they took it from him. And that resulted in such blood loss that Jesus probably suffered shock. The hypovelmic shock is shock that comes on because of a, an extreme loss of blood. And it probably left him physically unable to carry that crossbar. Uh, once at the site of the crucifixion, they would drive spikes between the bones on his wrist, meant to be able to hold him there, you know, so that he wouldn't come loose from the cross as they hoisted that crossbeam into position. This would result in, in, in further pain and loss of blood. Once they attached that crossbeam to the upright. They would force Jesus' feet into position against that upright 
And they would drive yet another nail, another spike through that in a sadistic gesture that would give Jesus the opportunity to push up on that nail in his feet as his arms were stretched out and as he was suffocating to death to be able to push up on that spike so that he could get a breath once again. As he hung there by those nails in his wrists and in his feet. We underestimate the cost of forgiveness. As horrible as that was, I think the worst part of the crucifixion was suffering that separation from God the Father. There's a lot of debate and discussion about suffering in hell. Some mistakenly think that there is no such thing. They are wrong. Mark chapter 9. Jesus said, And if your hand causes you causes your downfall, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands who go into hell, the unquenchable fire. Luke chapter 16. Jesus again says, And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments. Revelation chapter 20. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. As horrible as all of this sounds, I think the worst suffering is hell, in hell is from one's eternal separation from God due to their sin. I think that is part of the torment of hell. I think that is probably the worst part of the torment in hell. Jesus suffered that separation as he paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. Jesus said very little during his trial. In fact, you know, Pilate said, aren't you going to answer? Aren't you going to say anything? Aren't you going to defend yourself? And Jesus wouldn't do that. He said very little while hanging on the cross. But one of the things he did say showed this suffering from being separated from the presence of God the Father. He said about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We underestimate the cost of forgiveness. Forsaken by God. We underestimate the cost of our forgiveness. You know, we, we don't really know or feel the depth or the weight of our sin. In Dan Ortland's book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, I, I mentioned it to you last week. This is one of the things he writes. Christ, being perfectly holy, knows and feels the horror and weight of sin more deeply than any of us sinful ones could. We underestimate the cost of our forgiveness. Because of what Christ went through, though, all people have the opportunity to be forgiven. Because he paid that cost, all people, all people have the opportunity to be forgiven. Acts chapter 10, verse 43. 
All the prophets testify about him that through his name, everyone, everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sin. There is an unconditional promise of God. We will receive forgiveness. When we believe in him, when, when, when we come to him, everyone, anyone, anyone who comes who believes in him will receive that forgiveness. No one can blame God because they reject his offer of salvation. No one can blame God. The prophets, it says all the prophets testify about him. The prophets testified to those who lived before Jesus Christ. The prophets still testify today. Don't ignore forgiveness. Don't ignore forgiveness. First John, I think we've brought this up probably every week we've been going through this, this verse. First John chapter 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here again, there it is, that, 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 con, that conditional promise of God. I said that the, the other one in Acts 10 was unconditional. That's conditional. You know, anyone who comes, he will forgive. Here again, if we confess, if we, if we confess, if we go and confess, God, he gives forgiveness. It's gone. From our, from our viewpoint, it's gone like it had never been there. But don't underestimate the cost of that forgiveness. We are cleansed because of his death on the cross. We receive forgiveness. First John is also written to God's people. Just like Second Chronicles is, just like Second Chronicles 7.14 is written to God's people. This here is, is a message written to God's people. Those with a relationship with Christ. Those who have a relationship to Christ. If those who have a relationship with Christ, if, if we confess our sins. Why? Because we still sin and we, we, we sin and we can still come to him and we can be forgiven. When you have the relationship with God through Christ Jesus as your Savior, then forgiveness is a fact whether you feel forgiven or not. When you come to him through Jesus Christ, forgiveness is a fact. You may not feel forgiven. You know, sometimes we say, well, I, I don't feel like I'm forgiven. No, probably what you feel is, the, is you're beginning to feel the weight of your sin. And the fact that you may not feel forgiven does not change the fact that God forgives when we come to him. First John chapter 2 says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus' name. Remember, he's writing to those who have a relationship with Christ. And those who have a relationship with Christ, they have been forgiven. Don't ignore forgiveness. My people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways and I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land. The land is healed as God's people are healed and live as God's people. I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Let's pray. Father, we very much 
very much need your healing, your grace, your forgiveness. Thank you for what is ours in Christ. And that just rolls off our tongue very easily sometimes, but yet it cost a great deal. And you were willing to pay that for us. Not because we deserved it, but because you are God and you are a forgiving God. I ask that you will help us to remember not only that great price for our salvation, but the great love you have for us, your presence with us. I pray you don't let the enemy beat any of these down here who know you. I pray you don't let the enemy keep any of those who don't know you that you won't, and might be here, that you won't allow the enemy to keep them away from you, but that they might come to you for forgiveness, for cleansing. Thank you, Lord. While we continue to want to see you work in our land, we know it's as you work in the hearts of your people that this land will be changed. Continue to transform us to be more and more the light of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.